Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part one of episode number 125 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all you to part one of episode number 125 of my 60 music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or in Stitcher, or in iHeartRadio, on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this going to give you a brief description of what the show's all about? Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 25-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. And uh, each week of this podcast, I take one song by one artist in the 60s to put the show in two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks and then do my own personal on the range of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind that track. At part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the musicians in the track, what studio the song was recorded at, where that studio was located at, the history behind the song as I wrote the song, the producers that produced it, the artists that sang the song, whether it be the band members or the or there was a vocal group or female or male female solo singer, and uh, the label song was released on where that label is located at, and the city where that least label is located, and the history behind that too, and the peak business song we had originally built but a hot 100 charts when it first came out the year when the song was released. All that is in the second part of this show. Now, before we move on this week's episode of the podcast, um, I wanted to address something. Uh, you might have noticed that this podcast is coming at you a little bit later this week, and uh, there's a reason for that, and I figured I just should just let you guys know, because some of you might have, you know, were expecting a podcast episode from me last Monday, but, or yesterday, and you didn't get it. Well, you know, uh, I was going through something on Monday that made me feel very upset and uh, a little down, a little, you know, just, you know, it, I was in a funk on Monday, and, uh, you know, that uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, that kind of delayed me recording my podcast for this week. So, um, you know, just, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, when I do my podcast, I try to be in the best mood I could possibly be in. And I got to be honest with you, sometimes when I don't, when I feel like I'm upset or I feel like something is not, you know, is something that's bothering me or I feel kind of just not, not feeling that great today. Uh, or or any any day really, I just I just don't record my podcast because I want to feel like I I want to give this my all to you guys, and I don't want to feel I don't want to let my emotions get in the way with me doing um, my podcast. So um, you know that's why I didn't record it on Monday, and uh, you know just just letting you guys know that. And uh, I've been working on some other things too, working on some video promotion material for my next, for my uh, two song single that just came out. Hopefully you guys have checked it out. And I've noticed I have some, I've heard, I've seen some spins on Spotify from some cities, people, you know, places, um, I don't know anybody who's there. So, you know, if the, if you listen to this podcast and you checked out my two song single and, you know, on Spotify and, you know, from listening to this, I don't know you. I really do appreciate you. Thank you for that. Um, I hope you enjoyed that part of myself, but also, um, I wanted to give this podcast a lot of thought, uh, for this week, because this is definitely not going to be a traditional sort of thing that I do, uh, with my podcast, because I'm going to be doing something kind of different this week. And, um, as usual, I promise I will do, um, a modern take of the genre I did last week, um, which was, you know, the girl group, sixties girl groups. And I'm going to cover that this week. I'm very excited to do that, but um, I'm I'm not just going to do that, but I'm also actually going to do another song in the same episode that is of the the original sort of you know version of this of the genre music I covered last week, um, and it's not going to be on. It's going to the the new, the Brill Building thing is still going to tie in, but it's actually going to be a West Coast record and show you guys that you know. Even though a lot of stuff was recorded in New York for as far as the Brill Building music is concerned, a lot of stuff also was also recorded in Los Angeles. And there's this one guy who was sort of the connection between New York and L.A. in regards to the Brill Building. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away last weekend. And I'm going to pay. I'm going to look. I mean, I'm going to talk about him a lot next week. And you're going to find out 
some information about him. And I, I can't promise you, if you don't know anything about this guy, I can't promise you that there's going to be things about him that you'll love, um, you know, because he was a very difficult and troubled man. And, you know, I'll talk more about that next week. But he had a lot of issues and he just was not a perfect person by any means, you know, and he really wasn't that great of a person to begin with, but he was very talented and he knew what he was doing in the studio and he was very innovative. He, he really thought outside the box in regards to recording music, you know, back in the sixties. And he did a lot of things that were kind of industry that are basically industry standard for right now. So he did a lot of important things that were very, you know, key in regards to creating a whole totally different kind of a sound, you know, as far as popular music is concerned, he was really one of the first guys to use a recording studio as a musical instrument. And that's actually very true. And, uh, you know, he passed away last weekend. So I figured that, um, you know, I would just, you know, remember him by doing a song that he recorded, which definitely correlates with the modern day version of the girl group, uh, you know, a genre that I'm also going to be doing as well. So, uh, bear with me guys. Cause you know, it's going to be another long episode cause I'm basically going to be doing what I normally do on my podcast twice and within one episode. So I'm going to be doing analyzation on two songs versus just one. So you're going to hear, uh, two examples of these songs. You know, one's going to be the first song the next going to be another song, but it's going to be a doozy. So, you know, hang tight, but it's definitely, you're definitely going to enjoy it. And, you know, and I feel like it's kind of important for me to kind of do the modern day version of this girl group genre because, you know, it's it's important to realize that even though a lot of modern day stuff isn't exactly influenced, you know, from the 60s, you know, and I've talked about that in length in previous episodes of my podcast, there are some examples of recent popular music, and I'm not t- talking totally recent, but within the last 10 years, right, there's been examples of popular music that was you know influenced by music from the 60s and you know this is a really great example of this and you know the artist I'm doing this week I guarantee you if you're a millennial you'll know who she is because she was a huge tv star in you know the last 10 years in the 2010s and you know she was she's really really big and you'll recognize her from all the movies that she did but she kind of had this parallel career as also a singer songwriter and a musician as well and she really did did a great job embodying that 60s girl group pop sound. And I'm going to do one of her songs today. I'm very excited to do that because I love her music so much. Having just discovered her stuff for the first time uh, November of last year. So a couple months ago, I discovered her stuff for the first time. Wasn't aware of her at all, but I absolutely love every single one of her songs that she did. At least on her third album that she did with her du- duet partner. And I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But... I'm very excited because I'm going to do a song that she that was off of that album, and I'm also going to do a song that probably influenced her for that out al- for that song that she put out for that album that she recorded back in 2013. But anyways, uh, let's get started in this week's songs. Moving on, let's get started in this week's song, shall we? Okay, so um, this absolutely blew my mind when I first heard this. I, I literally my jaw literally dropped to the floor. I was like, oh my god. I mean, it just, I've never heard anything like it. It's just, it, it, the, the sound of this record is just unbelievable. Having grown up listening to this music and hear, hear this, this genre in a modern, you know, in a modern sort of way, it just, oh my God, it was amazing. I, I fell in love with it. You know, it just it really, really took my breath away. And, you know, I, you know, and there's something about the song that's so charming and just so well written and just well produced and well arranged. I mean, it's just, you know, and I can tell that, you know, even while listening to this, that this was, there was no MIDI software instruments happening. This was all done, you know, if, even if it wasn't all done live being recorded at the exact same time with everyone in the same room, I could tell that, you know, it's just the spirit of the 60s is so alive with this song. And it's not the other thing about this is that this is just a great example of modern day 60s pop. It's not blue eyed soul. It's not like R&B. It's not like Amy Winehouse or Sharon Jones, the Dap Kings. It's so not that it's so 60s pop. So imagine if Brian Wilson, you know, and Burt Bacharach and Carol King were a female songwriter, you know, within the last 10 years. And she was in her, and they were in their 30s and still making that kind of music in today's world 
um, you know, I, I'm really, really excited to talk about this because she was really good example of just someone who really embodied, you know, 60s pop music within the last 10 years. And she really did a good job of it. And I just I can't believe I've talked about her music with you. And you'll be surprised, you know, because you'll definitely know who she is, especially if you're a millennial. Okay, so this song, I don't think it was released as a single. I could be wrong, but uh, it was part of an album. Uh, called Volume 3, which came out in May of 2013. And the name of the songwriter who wrote this is Zoe Deschanel, and she recorded this as part of a duo that she was with uh, with a guy named Matthew Ward. And the duo name is called She and Him, and the name of the song is called Never Wanted Your Love. Did that record come out in 2013? Are you sure about that? Because it doesn't sound like it. I mean, uh, it, I, 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 I can't believe that record came out when I was like 17 years old. Because um, it sure doesn't sound like it, man. It really, really doesn't. But it just blows my mind how much this song has such a 60 sound to it. And we're going to get into what makes this song so incredible musically and lyrically why it has that 60s sound so much in just a few moments but first let's get into the song's music okay so first of all um there's several things about the song that make it sound 60s um even though sonically i mean they weren't really going for that 60s sound and let me just explain to you why sonically doesn't have that 60s sound well you know i've talked about this before in my podcast so many early 60s records were recorded in mono, and not very many of them are recorded in stereo. So, you know, I mean, just the fact of the matter is, is that when you heard records back in the early 60s, none of it sounded like there was no stereo separation happening at all. It was all done, you know, with, with mono tape machines, you know, to two track or three track. I mean, that was the sound of the early 60s. And this was not recorded with that kind of technology. Um... You know, the, when you listen to the song, it sounds just like it was done, you know, with modern day recording technology, probably, you know, many, 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 a huge multi-track, you know, console, you know, connected to the Pro Tools using a computer, you know, using whatever, you know, recording, you know, materials around at that time, probably the most up-to-date plugins, you know, so I mean, yeah, I mean, this doesn't sound sonically it doesn't have that 60 sound at all because, you know, it was all done probably with the most state of the art gear at that time. And it wasn't doesn't sound like it was done on a two track tape machine in mono. And, you know, and there's something about, you know, that because, you know, it's it's important. I feel kind of how I feel about, you know, music is that sometimes it's it's not a it's not always a bad idea to kind of march forward into with today's technology and utilize it. Uh, you know, as, as I feel like as long as you're not trying to use technology to create sounds that don't sound real or authentic, you know, as long as you're using technology to sort of, you know, record music and you're doing, you're using modern technology to make your life, e make your life easier as a musician and as a, as a recording engineer, then please, you know, it's, that's what, we're, that's what it's designed for. So I'm all for, you know, using modern day technology. Cause I feel like it's important to not necessarily live in the past when it comes to that. But when it comes down to songwriting and actually making, you know, music, you know, I feel like a lot of new stuff today, you know, the, you know, it's, 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 it, you know, some of it's kind of cringeworthy, to be honest with you. And I know I don't always talk about this on my podcast, but I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of a lot of, you know, stuff, you know, f that's in the top 40 now, because a lot of it sounds, it doesn't, it, it sounds very, um, you know, just sugar-coated and just very, like, electronic and not organic or, you know, very uh, authentic sounding. 
And, you know, it's just, and I, you know, and it just doesn't, and the thing is about, you know, these songs off of this album is that you can tell that there was real musicianship being put into these songs and they were reading from charts and they were recording these songs very much in the sense of, you know, having actual people in the room and doing it like an actual record instead of just, you know, on a lap, using a laptop and 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 a drum machine and a MIDI keyboard. I mean, there was real musicianship put into this, you know, even though obviously it wasn't done the way they used to do it back in the early 60s when it was all done live. You know, I mean, obviously they probably multi-tracked this entire thing, but still it's very, you know, you can tell it the spirit of the 60s in a sense that it was all done with really good musicians and really good equipment. And, you know, and it was done, you know, not just from a laptop and a, and a, and a keyboard that that's there's really something to be said about that because you know that there's real talent going behind this and there were they really were they weren't trying to fix anything to make it sound perfect you know there was real there was real sort of uh you know you know musicianship going on with this record and you can totally hear that with the song and another thing that makes the the first the thing the thing that really gives it away that makes this record sound 60s is the arrangement because there's so many things going on with the song arrangement-wise that make it sound like a 60s record. Like, for example, um, the, 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 quarter, the, the eighth note triplet uh, strings happening, that's so 60s. That's 1,000% 60s. I mean, it's just, you know, when you hear those eighth note triplets and the, and the, doing this, the strings doing that, it, it just it, it, it embodies the sound of... The Burt Backrack, you know, sessions, you know, that he did in New York at Bell Sound Studios with Dion Warwick. And it embodies some of, you know, a lot of that, uh, you know, a, a lot of actually a lot of Brian Wilson, too, who was doing a very similar thing. I mean, you can kind of I mean, for example, like when Brian Wilson recorded Good Vibrations, right, he had the cellos do the exact same thing with their parts you know, in that, in, in, in what the, what the string players are doing in this song. I mean, they're doing those, you know, eighth note triplets and they just sound incredible. I mean, you know, then that's, that's the thing is that you can kind of draw a straight line between good vibrations in the song. Cause you know, in, in that song, the cellos, you know, and, you know, and in, in the, the, you know, those, those instruments they are playing those eighth note triplets. And that's exactly what uh, these, you know, these violin players are doing with the song. So you can just draw a complete straight line, you know, with the 60s in this particular track. It's just, it's unbelievable because if you didn't know this was, this was, came out in 2013, you would, you would have assumed that this was done probably in the 60s or this would, this was a re-recorded version of a song from the 60s or a cover or something like that from back then. And also, one other thing to keep in mind is that uh, the another thing that's really cool is that you know the drum fill is happening because there's there's a, there's a there's rim shots happening with the song, and the rim shots are doing again those eighth note triplets and then there's a little bit of a rhythm change once once after you get to the chorus you know but listen listen how much that sounds like songs like group like groups from the Dave Clark Five right you know because that was a very signature thing with their music. Um, you know, in songs like Cactus If You Can and songs like Bits and Pieces. I haven't talked about the end of it yet on my podcast, but I definitely will at some point. But, you know, when you go back and listen to those records, you'll notice that that eighth note triplet uh, snare rim shot is definitely there. And that's exactly what's happening in this song. I mean, it's just, you know, it, you know, and, and again, you know, they're, they're recreating 60s pop. They're not trying to recreate the sound of the drifters or this, I mean, that's pop music, but you know, they're not trying to go for that black sound. They're trying to recreate the sound of records, you know, produced by Burt Backrack and Brian Wilson and even some of the British invasion stuff too. So much of that is in there with the song and there's, you know, and there's so much, so many intricate things happening arrangement wise with this track. I mean, not just those drum fills, but the guitar parts are very interesting too, because you know the the guitar player in the song. Who, by the way, I'm pretty sure it's Matthew Ward. His playing is, it, you know, he's really the star in the show with this track because, you know, he's doing all these crazy fills and he's bringing in some of those 
some of the aesthetics of a little bit of Steve Cropper too, because some of his playing is 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 very much echoes into the pl- players like James Burton and guys like Reggie Young and Steve Cropper. You know, they're playing those you know those licks that have Southern soul aesthetics to it, but you're not, but they're not trying to recreate Otis Redding or anything like that. It's not, they're not going for that sound, but he's bringing a lot of those elements into uh, a song like this. And also another sort of player that probably influenced Matthew Ward when he was recording this song and a couple of the other tracks on this album too is Zal Yanowski. Cause if you listen to the guitar solo and you'll believe in magic, right? And if you don't know that song, we'll go listen to it because it's incredible. It's really, really amazing. Well, if you listen to the guitar solo in that song, which I believe is played by Zal Yanovsky on that record, um, you know, you'll notice that his playing on this track and a couple other of the tracks on this album, too, you know, is very much influenced by Zal. I mean, it's just the, the playing is so there that it's really you can definitely hear elements of that is of, of his playing in Matt's playing in this song. You know, it's just it's it's unbelievable how much, you know, this record pulls from songs from the 60s and even with the chord progression, too, because, you know, you know, another thing that makes it sound really 60s is just, you know, that one six two five thing happening. I mean, that's that's a very 60s thing, too. And, you know, the in, in it just it's a very intricate one six two five because there's a lot of extra notes added into that final five chord that give it the extra sort of spice to it. But it just hearing that is just that that really does sound amazing. And I just everything about this record is just unbelievable. And, you know, another thing is, is that when you when it kind when it when it kind of gets to the chorus, right, you hear this progression and. To be honest with you, I think it, she might have gotten the idea for the progression for the song from, uh, you know, uh, the Phil Spector's pr- production on Christmas Gift for You for Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And the reason why I'm saying this is because on that version of the song, you know, uh, it's I mean, obviously all, all versions of the song has have this progression, but it's basically this thing where it's like it goes from the one to the dominant seven one and then. It, you know, basically it goes from the one to the dominant seven one and then to the four and then the minor four, you know, or, a dim, you know, a diminished, you know, uh, flat, you know, uh, I think what uh, it's it's a it's four to the minor four, but the minor four can also be um, a minor seven flat five, you know, you know, depending on, you know, what, you know, if there's a substitution going on there. But I think she might have gotten that idea for that progression from listening to. Phil Spector's A Christmas Gift for You and listening to their version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town because that same progression is there actually in that song, you know, so she might have, you know, gotten the idea from, you know, listening to that version of the song, you know, from after when, when she was writing this one. But I mean, this this song is just amazing because you can tell, I mean, it's just to hear real instruments in the song and not synthesizers and drum machines and, you know, and not like, you know, sort of not the most pleasant, pleasant sounding sounds that you hear in a lot of electronic music to hear, you know, a song like this is absolutely refreshing. And look, at I mean, I know this album did not come out recently, like like literally last year. I mean, it came out in 2013. So there's been a lot a lot of time has passed since this album came out and you know and I know that it's been a while since he's since he's released anything but just you know the fact that even just eight years ago in 2013 hearing a, a song that sounds like from the 60s even in the context within that time is unbelievable because if you think about it that year specifically that was the year of Katy Perry that was the year of Lana Del Rey that was that was a year of so much you know music that was such a far cry from stuff from the 60s it's not even funny and the crazy thing about it is that when you listen to this record right and you listen you know you have to keep in mind she was almost she was about the same age and even older than people like Lady Gaga and Adele and Katy Perry and Lana Del Rey and all those big you know female artists from you know 2013 she was about the same age even older than them and the fact that she was she she was in that same age group as them and writing music like this like like she was like Leslie Gore it's unbelievable I mean that really is quite amazing and I just I love every single aspect of this record and and it's just this is proof that, you know, someone, you know, who is an icon of the millennial generation could heavily be influenced 
by this music from the 60s. And, you know, she and again, she was born in 1980. So, you know, even though they were playing all these, you know, this kind of music on all these radio at the time, I mean, she could have been listening to, you know, Nirvana or, you know, or, you know, Queens of the Stone Age or Stone Temple Pilots or, you know, she could have been listening to Britney Spears or, I mean, maybe not Britney Spears, but I mean, Beyonce and Destiny's Child and all those big 90s groups. She could have been really into that stuff and decide to write music like that. But no, she was she was listening to the the music from the sixties, the stuff that her parents grew up on, and she was listening to that stuff and loving that music too. So it's really amazing that she kind of decided to not be, you know, someone like you know Britney Spears or someone like Mariah Carey, someone who was big in the nineties. She decided to be someone who was more vintage and more a couple generations before you know those artists, if you know what I mean. You know, so that's really really cool that she decided to do that. And while we're at it, let's get into the song's lyrics. All right, so now let's get into the song's lyrics. Um, one thing that I love about this song is just there's a record that came out in 1966 that was the number one record, right? Actually, it came out like really late 65, but by the time 65 ended and 66 began, uh, it was number one. It was called Lightning Strikes by Luke Christie. Um, if you listen to that song, right, there's so much lyrical complexity going on with that record because. You know, it's about a guy that's, you know, doesn't know what he wants from a girl and he keeps telling her all these things and they're all sort of conflicting with each other. I mean, does she does she want a woman that's going to be faithful to him, that's going to date him and no one else? Or does she want order or does, does he want someone that is going to, uh, you know, maybe she want maybe he doesn't want a girl that's faithful maybe he wants to try, go out with other women too and maybe it's you know so there's so many conflicting things happening lyrically with that song and with this song it's really no different because you know the the, the psyche of what's happening in the song lyrically is fascinating because you know um you know <laughs> you know she you know Zoe you know she's painting the character of this woman who is so doesn't like this guy at all, you know, but at the same time, you know, she, you know, he, she's, she's kind of emotionally, emotionally attached to him, you know, and it's like, you know, it's like, he, you know, it's one of those things she kind of has a toxic relationship with this guy, you know, cause you know, it's like in the, in the verses she talks about how she really, you know, you know, it's like he, you know, he thinks she kind of, she thinks that she has changed and that he, is gonna is is going to you know not do what he used to do and then he does it again and then he and then he like you know and then she loses trust of him and then you know she kind of shuts him off and shuts you know her herself off from the world you know especially in the in, in the pre-chorus when she's like i'm not talking to you anymore i'm making my bed so i can lie in here forever i don't know what i'm doing this for all i know is i'm trying to be clever i mean tired of being clever i mean you know that lyric within itself is such there's it's so profound because you know she's she's not trying to flirt with him she's not trying to be mrs you know someone that is going to um you know play with him and just sort of play his game you know all 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 she's saying is that she doesn't want to have anything to do with her him anymore and how she never even wanted him to begin with but there's something interesting happening cuz once you kind of get to the to the to the to the chorus, right? The chorus goes, "Take a win, take a fall. I never wanted your love, but I needed it all." I mean, that's something that's a little strange because you know she's saying she never wanted him, but she needed him at the same time. I mean, let me let me just put it to you this way: that kind of lyric harkens to songs like "You Really Got a Hold on Me." by you know Smokey Robinson the Miracles or Smokey goes like I don't like you but I love you seems that I'm always thinking of you oh treat you treat me badly I I love you madly I mean it's the same thing it's like you know it's sort of a it's sort of a toxic relationship with you know that that she has with this guy you know it's like man I I don't like you at all I really don't like you but yet I'm attached to you and I can't get enough of you. It's the same kind of lyrical thing happening with, you know, this song and you really got a hold on me by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Even though actually I think that song was actually credited to the Miracles. They weren't called Smokey Robinson and the Miracles yet, but that Smokey Robinson did write that song and it was but it did get released under the name The Miracles. But you just have to think like it's it's the if you listen to that song and you listen to this one, they're about the exact same thing lyrically. I mean 
you know, it's just it's it's um it's like she's a he, he Smokey's attached to this woman, even though he feels like you know it's it, the 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 relationship is toxic and Zoe is attached to this guy, you know she knows the relationship is toxic and she doesn't want anything to do with him anymore, but you know it's but she she can't get enough of him and she just you know continues to subscribe to his you know, things that she she doesn't want to tolerate anymore. There's something to be said about that. Because I feel like in a lot of, you know, relationships, a lot of girls feel like, even though the guy, even though she they don't like him, he's, you know, she, you know, she thinks they're, to- they, they, the guy's toxic, you know, she's still going to be dating him, you know, until she can't take it anymore. And that's, and, and it goes with guys too, because a lot of guys take girls and they know that they're toxic, you know, they're no good for them, but they yet they still go out with them. And there's something to be said about that, you know, it's that toxic masculinity thing that's, that is, you know, that, you know, that a lot of women are somehow attracted to for some weird reason. I don't know why, but it's really quite fascinating with that, you know, and it's, and, and then that, that sort of thing is captured, you know, within lyrics of this song. And again, you know, there's just so many, you, again, you can draw a direct line between the lyrics in the song and you really got to hold on to me by the miracles, which had Smokey Robinson singing lead. And you can sort of think like, wow, okay, so um, that song, you really got hold on me, came out in 1962, almost 60 years ago this year. And, it, it, you know, it's amazing how a song that's almost 60 years old can have the same lyrical content as a song that's almost eight years old, you know, from 2021. So a song from 2013, a song from 1962, I mean, th- there's such a huge difference between those two, those, those, I want to say maybe 49 years, you know, it's just, you know, actually, actually 50, 50 years, I think, so 1962 and 2013, that's, that's Actually, that's fifty-one years. Sorry, <laughs> I mean I had to think about that for a minute. But there's a huge, you know, difference in popular music between 1962 and 2013. There's a huge gap, you know, as far as what was happening on the radio back then and what was happening on the radio in 2013. But just think that those songs almost are identical lyrically, but they're different musically. But they, but they're about the same thing lyrically, and they both came out years and years apart from each other. I mean, that's amazing. I really. That's incredible, and I love I love that about this song. It's really quite amazing, and I just, you know, and now what's going to happen is that you know, and you, you might you might be able to relate to that too if you're if you've been in a toxic relationship before and you feel like you haven't been able to get out of it. Maybe this song is for you too, you know, especially if you're a millennial around my age. And look, I mean, this Zoe's a huge star, you know, and she's you know she had a huge TV show back when I was in high school called New Girl that lasted for a long time and she's been she's been in huge movies like 500 Days of Summer and Elf and so many other big films and next week's episode we're going to talk about what actually what made her get into her music in the first place because let's be honest you might not have known that she's actually a singer and she's actually a singer and she writes her own songs you might not have, you might not have known that about her uh, you know, and we'll talk more about how she really got into that in uh, next week's episode of the podcast. But now let's get into the song that definitely influenced uh, this song, "Never Want Your Love," and talk about, you know, we'll um, break down that song too and talk about the wall of sound with uh, Phil Spector. Moving on, let's get get on to song number two. Okay, so like I said before, uh, you know, with uh, you know, like just earlier in this episode, this is going to be a two song analysis and breakdown last song I just talked about was she and him's never wanted your love. Now I'm going to talk about a song that definitely probably influenced, uh, never wanted your love. And again, it's actually from around the same time as he really got a hold on me by the miracles. It was, I think it might've been released and recorded at the exact same time, but this is another song that came out in late 1962 and early 1963. And it's unbelievable how much, it has the sound of uh, Never Want Your Love, except it was recorded, you know, actually in the 60s. And, you know, and we're going to talk about how amazing this, this song sounds sonically and just what, how, the unbelievable, you know, just unearthly like sound this record has. And I just I can't wait to, you know, talk about it with you guys. But. Um, again, this song came out in late 1962, and it was on the charts in early 1963. And it was, even though it came out as the, as the Crystals, you know, it's been the credits have been reverted back to the original lead singer of the song, which is "Darling Love." And we'll talk more about that in next week's episode of the podcast. But 
Anyways, the name of the song is called He's Sure the Boy I Love. Always dreamed the boy I love would come along And he'd be tall and handsome, rich and strong Now that boy I love has come to me But he sure ain't the way I thought he'd be Now that is an incredible sounding record. I mean, sonically, it's unfreaking believable. Holy shit! Wow. I mean, <laughs> it just—it it sounds so beefy and so huge and so unbelievable. I mean, we'll, we'll we'll talk about what makes a song so great musically and lyrically. But first, let's get into the song's music. Okay, so the 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 main thing that blows my mind about this song. Every, pretty much every single other song that this guy produced is just this weird, unearthly sound that comes comes out of them that is so unexplainably, you know, just so weird, but yet so, you know, big and so huge. And it's one of those things that, you know, there's been books, countless amount of books and things that have been written about how he achieved the sound. And it was unlike anything that had been done before in popular music. And what was so weird about the sound is that, you know, there's no real stereo separation happening and there's no sense of being able to hear each instrument clearly. And there's this huge presence of tons of reverb happening with the song. And, you know, and it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, my Andy Paley, you know, who I've had on my podcast, he's told me that, a lot of his records sound drier than most people think, but there has to, there's something to be said about you know what made these records sound so huge, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that these that he doubled and tripled every instrument that you heard on these records, and he let the microphones open, and basically he didn't really do a whole lot of isolation happening with a lot of these instruments so everything all the instruments leaked into each other and it created this huge big fat wall of sound but really he had for each guitar player he had five of them for each piano player he had three of them and then for each bass player he had four of them and he doubled and tripled every instrument and the other thing the other secret ingredient to the wall of sound that people don't even realize is that you know back in the 60s right i've talked about this before a, a standard recording session was three hours and then you cut three or four songs in three hours so you do like you know two or three takes for each song and then that'd be it you know but what this guy did that was so unorthodox and so weird and kind of controversial for its time was that instead of doing instead of a three you, you would still do three hour sessions because that was with the rules the union rules at the time you know sessions couldn't really last more than three hours um, you know, at least in America, I mean, the UK was probably different, but in America, sessions couldn't be more than three hours. He would use those three hours not to record three or four songs, but would basically, he would spend three hours recording the exact same song, but the backing track, you know, and he would spend all the, and he, and he would basically do 46 to 50 takes the exact same song. He would not do any sort of overdubs or anything like that. He would spend so much time recording this exact same backing track with these musicians and he would do 46 or 50 takes the exact same track and he did this because he did not he the reason why he did this is because he wanted to lose a lot of individualism with each uh in each instrument that was being played by each musician in the studio uh he really wanted things to just not sound he didn't want things to stick out and that's exactly what this guy did and he really he did achieve that so much with the song and it's fascinating because there's so many things happening like, you know, the, and, and check this out. So we talked about, uh, you know, about about 16th about sorry, eighth note triplets happening with uh, with Gene Hymns, you know, Never Want You Love. Well, a lot a very similar thing is happening with with this song, except it's chord note triplets in the beginning with that drum fill happening. Right. It's a very similar thing happening. And the chord progression for this song and Never Want You Love are almost identical. They're almost exact same chord progression. 
And this song is so cool musically because it's got all the different things happening. It's got the huge Barry Sack sound. It's got the snow change. It's got the it's got the tambourine. I mean, all the percussion elements are just, you know, are such a are such a high volume with this song. And you know, it's it's got the roaring Barry Sax and it's got the it's got the guitars playing on top of the bass. I mean, there's just holy crap. This record is unbelievable sounding and the and the vocals on the song sound, you know, almost like literally it's like an it's like an alien how big they sound, how unearthly they sound. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, here's and the other thing is is that the way this guy worked is that he would spend 40, 60, 50 takes on the backing track and then he would basically do another on another day he would overdub vocals and back of vocals and strings. You know, and that's basically what the, how this guy worked. But it was all on a two-track tape machine, so he'd have one track for the, for the, for the, uh, for the, for the, for the individual musicians, and for the backing track, another track for the vocals and overdubs and strings. So it was all done the two-track machine, and you know, and everything. There was no stereo separation happening. It was all being recorded and mixed in mono, and the sound of the open, you know, microphones bleeding into each other, and the musicians doing 40, 60, 50 takes of the same song. And everything sort of blending together create this huge wall of sound. And of course, a little bit of help from the echo chamber downstairs of the studio this song was recorded at. But I mean, it's just it sounds amazing. And look, you know, the thing is with these two songs that the chord progression isn't really the thing to, you know, uh, you know, harp on because it's kind of a little bit cliche in certain areas. But again, it's all about the sound and the arrangements of these songs is what makes this song makes these songs so incredible. And again, just like last week with Fool's Little Girl, there's that, you know, opening verse again. I've talked about that where they were kind of trying to emulate the sounds of George Gershwin and Ira Gershwin doing those opening verses on those Tin Pan Alley, you know, Broadway songs, you know, from, you know, uh, you know, and of course, from, you know, from the Great American Songbook. Again, you'll you hear that again with this song. It's almost the exact same thing. It's just there's an opening verse sung by Darling Love and you just and you hear those backup vocals come in and holy shit with the way the song starts after the opening verse those you know those chord those chord note uh you know this chord note triplets that Hal Blaine is doing and the way the song kicks off it's unbelievable i mean the sound of this is just i mean from the snow change to the you know to the to the to the guitars you know playing on top of the bass playing that really grooving sort of you know walk and bass part that they're playing it's just the song's unbelievable it's just really really cool and you know, it's just it's sonically it just it, you know you can't help but just dance and move to the song because it just it has such an upbeat sort of powerful message to it, and it's just it's really really great and I and I love this entire record and especially the ending too where things kind of vamp up and then the things kind of and then the song kind of repeats. I mean, again, it's AABA, so you know it's it has that AABA song structure to it. So again, it has the feel of a lot of those um you know those records from you know the from the. 30s and 40s at Tin Pan Alley, especially the opening verse, but it just sounds incredible. And I love that, you know, that bridge section where the where the Barry Saxes take over and they play the melody of the song, or they play the kind of their own melody actually. But it's just it sounds amazing. I love every single inch of this record. And now let's get into the song's lyrics. Okay, so this is kind of an interesting uh, you know, subject that you don't really hear too much of in today's world, you know, since women are, you know, very picky about guys these days and there's a lot of you know a lot of feminism happening so some some women hating on guys you know and and this is not one of those songs because you know she's talking about how you know she has this sort of you know she you know she you know when when she meets the guy of her dreams you know she's a little disappointed because this guy isn't exactly everything that she dreamed of you know, this guy doesn't have, you know, doesn't have a lot of money. He's very, you know, uh, he, you know, he's, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't own a big house or he doesn't, uh, you know, he, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have the greatest, he's not like a hot guy, but the fact of the matter is, is that she might, he might've been someone that she's always wanted, but you know, he's, you know, she still loves him regardless. And, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, she she loves the way he holds her tight. And then, you know, and that and there's something to be said about that. You know, when you when you when you see a lot of women, you know, singing about songs these days, they're talking about it. There's a lot of feminism going on where they just, you know, they feel like they're kind of picky with guys and they just, you know, it, there's a lot of deal breakers happening. But it's one thing for a girl to say, hey, 
you know, you may not be someone I've always envisioned, but I'm still going to love you regardless. There's something to be said about that, you know, statement. And it's something that sometimes I wish girls would kind of see about me, but that's a whole nother story. And I won't, you know, subject you guys to my sort of thoughts on that. But I mean, it's just, it's amazing how, you know, that statement is, it's very powerful because she's willing to overlook, you know, all of his flaws and still love him unconditionally, regardless of, you know, every sort of, you know, not so perfect sort of uh, thing that he's got going on for himself, you know. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, he doesn't even have a job. He says that in the, in the song, you know, she says, you know, all he all he's got is, un, is his unemployment check. And, you know, and a lot of people don't don't have jobs these days. So, I mean, it's it's very true that, you know, it's you know, she you know, you might be you might be experiencing that, too, because, you, you know, you might you're a girl and you might, you know, meet the guy your dreams, but he might not have a whole lot of money. But you kind of have to look past that and be like, look, just because he doesn't have a whole lot of money doesn't mean that he, you know, I don't like him or I don't, there's other things about him that I can't appreciate or love about him. And there's something to be said about that with this song. And it's really, and there's a, there's a powerful message with that, that someone can overlook how much, how someone looks and how, how much money they have and just look and be like, look at, there's a lot of things about this person I like and appreciate a lot, you know, and there's an, and a lot of, it takes a lot of maturity to do that. And, it's fascinating because Darlene Love was, I think she was only like 22 or 23 when she recorded this. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, maturity coming from someone in their early 20s that, you know, come to this conclusion. But again, she didn't write the song and I'll talk more about that in next week's episode of the podcast. But again, it's really amazing how she can kind of, she can sing a song like this and be very proud of it. I mean, you know, I'm sure you probably know her from, you know, when she used to sing Christmas Baby, Please Come Home on David Letterman show. You know, every Christmas, you know, every I think it was at the end of every year for all the shows that he did. But again, you know, this is something this is just proof that she could do really good stuff outside of the Christmas genre. And this is a really good example of that. And uh, next week, we'll talk about the history behind the Wall of Sound and Phil Spector and all that. And also talk about the history behind Zoe Deschanel and how she got into music in the first place and how, you know, her and her duet, duo partner Matthew Ward met in the first place. And I'll talk more about that next week. So after hearing she and him and after listening to Darlene love, you know, and she's the, and she's the boy I love. Um, I mean, he sure is the boy I love. Um, you can kind of see how, how much that song influenced she and him when they were writing, never want when, when Zoe Deschanel was writing, never want you love. I mean, the songs, again, they're almost identical musically because they have almost the same exact chord progression and they kind of had the same feel arrangement wise, except one was done with update equipment and one was, and the other one was on a two track tape machine, but still, I mean, it's you can hear how much that song influenced, uh, you know, Zoe Deschanel and how much she loved those '60s girl group records from Phil Spector and other people too, and it's just amazing how much that you know that style influenced her music. It's unbelievable, really, you know, and that it just it's just insane that the the time difference between those two songs and how much they influence one another. It's just incredible and how much she really decided to embody in that '60s girl group pop thing, and that's just proof that. You know, someone who is not a person from the 60s, you know, can be still be influenced by this stuff. You know, someone who was born in the 90s or someone who was born in the 80s who, you know, who is who's more the face of today's music or modern music can still heavily be influenced by stuff from the 60s. Um, but that's really cool that, you know, there you can kind of draw the connection, make the connection between the two. And uh, hopefully if you're a millennial and, you know, after hearing, you know, Zoe Deschanel's song, you'll take a chance on her music and maybe take a chance on a lot of this girl group stuff, too. But anyway, so um, that concludes part one of episode number 125 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams. And if you loved my, my analysis and takes on this week's songs and you're like, holy shit, is that Zoe Deschanel and her music? I never heard her stuff before, but her stuff sounds great and I love it. And I just, and I never heard any of her music before, but I grew up listening to watching her on new girl. And I love all the stuff that she was movies she was in. And I just, she sounds great. I love her stuff so much. And I just can't believe how much her stuff influenced this, you know, the sixties music. I never heard that song before, but darling love and the crystals. I just, you know, I never heard that mute song before. And I'm just completely blown away by how much her stuff influenced, 
you know, her stuff was influenced by that Phil Spector girl group pop thing and even some other girl group pop songs, too. If you're like that and if you're a millennial and you're on my age, please email me at samltwillyoutcloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Also, another thing you can check out is my two-song single um, in that and the link to the DistroKid link to that where you can find the Amazon, iTunes, Spotify, and Apple Music link. Uh, you know, to that two song single is in there. It's in the description of this week's episode of the podcast. And again, it's under my new name, Sam L. Williams. And again, that's Sam Capital L. Williams. You can also check out the official Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast. And there you'll be able to find all the songs I've talked about on my show so far. And listening to those playlists gives you any ideas for any kind of songs I just talk about next on my podcast. If I haven't yet, then please email those ideas to me at samltwilly.cloud.com. Or you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. And also, you can check out the official Redbubble merch store for this podcast. There you'll be able to find all these super cool um you know uh merch items which have my own custom logo designed specifically for this podcast it's a catchphrase i say at the end of every episode and keep on track and tie-dye font with the podcast in the bottom please go check that out you know if you can purchase anything i'd love really appreciate that um and if you want to you know please email me at samltwilliodcloud.com or you can also reach out to me on instagram iheartoldies and i would really really love it love it if you can do that but yeah so um that's really cool and uh you know also i'm making progress with my book that i'm writing with a uh, word transcripts of this podcast um basically i'm working on a bonus chapter of a band that i will do on my podcast at some point but basically that's going to be in the, in the upcoming book it's going to have an upcoming episode of my podcast that i haven't done yet so that's what i'm working on also uh there'll be new new progress made with my grand museum uh you know exhibit i'm going to film the pitch video really really soon because my school found a videographer so and she starts next week i'm very excited to do that i'll keep you guys posted on that when when that's going to be all put together super super excited to do that and uh yeah i'll keep you guys posted on the release date for my next single too but please you know in the meantime please keep streaming turquoise apricot and she said no i really appreciate that i love those two songs a lot and they can be found under my new stage name sam capwell williams i loved if you guys can do that i would really appreciate that but yeah so um i'm sam williams and uh thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast the millennial throwback machine until next week police keeping through.